My name's Tracy Smith. I was born and raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In 1998, I attended the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas. And at a promotional side event at a local coffee house, I saw a showcase featuring some of the most talented performance poets in the country. Afterwards, I returned home and founded the Kalamazoo Poetry Slam. Now, almost 25 years later, for the sake of history, for the sake of nostalgia, and for some of the incredibly talented people we've lost along the way, I give you, dear listener, the Keizu Poetry Slamcast. This is Slam Poem. Later, like, the poems are like, you dirty fucking whore. But this is one of the good ones from the beginning. My ears reach in the suburban noise of night. There's a question asked in one naked moment that never crossed into the I am the Smith. I am the poet. I am the Industrial Revolution. No longer bright as fireflies. No this week's Slamcast is very special, and I know I say that a lot, maybe too much, but this week's got some of my favorite people, Carrie Worla, Drac, James Dixon, Greg Bliss does some poetry and sings a song and plays his guitar, and for our feature we have Mr. Steve Marsh from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Steve's a guy who used to wear a lot of hats. I don't know how many hats he wears these days, but back in the day, he was the Slam Master of Ann Arbor. He was the president of Poetry Slam Incorporated. He ran an independent press that published books and CDs for the Poetry Slam community. I don't know how he did everything he did. I remember once at the Spring Slam Master meeting in Chicago. Must have been my second or third year attending. The popularity of Poetry Slams was reaching a crescendo with more and more slams joining uh, the nonprofit organization every year. And at the meeting, uh, I came up with a brilliant idea of assigning new slams mentors who could answer any questions about the, the organization and the rules. And Steve said, that's a great idea. Thanks for volunteering. Now, I didn't feel qualified to be anybody's mentor at the time. I was pretty new to it. But it turns out I was qualified, because if you do anything long enough, you get good at it. And that was just one of the little moments that made me feel seen and heard and included in the Slam family, and also responsible for the complaints and grievances of just about everybody. Man, I miss that. Sometimes. But my favorite hat that Steve wore was his poetry hat. His love of language and storytelling and his sincerity and wit. Steve crafted poems like Ron Swanson built chairs. My favorite poem of his isn't in this set because I don't think he'd written it yet. It was, I believe, entitled A Bladed Valentine. And uh, I believe he performed it for the first time at the Green Mill. And it made me cry in my whiskey and laugh out loud. And Dawn was next to me, so you'll hear her laugh out loud. Uh, but you won't hear it on this on this recording, uh, but I think I can find it, and I'll, I'll post a link to it on our Facebook page as a little treat. Also, this show is hosted by Dawn Saylor. Uh, you won't hear much of her because I was in the sound booth and I was trying to recapture uh, poetry and not poetry hosts. But you'll get a little... Little of her doing announcements and calling out the scores. I think I was in the can or getting a beer or something. And she's pretty fucking adorable. I think you're really going to like this show. Recorded March 13th, 2001. An answer for uh, Alice Walker. This is called A Poem Should. A poem should get up in the morning and go to work. It should be wide awake and ready to fuck or fight. A poem should pull out of sleepy neighborhoods with its horn blaring, flashing its brights into the quiet bedrooms throughout the suburbs. A poem should drive the speed limit in front of new drivers and go like hell when it's alone. A poem should be able to change its looks. It should be a little red jag when it's on the highway. It should be a big-ass camouflaged Humvee when it's in the country. It should be an old rusted blue pickup with a rattling topper whenever car thieves are around. A poem should roll down the windows and let the wind scramble its hair. And it should blow out the stink of stale winter air. A poem should have enough muscle to outrun the cops and enough finesse and flash to make the girls look twice 
if they have time. A poem should corner like a mountain goat. It should run like a cheetah and never, 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 ever have a flat tire. A poem should be able to go 50,000 miles between oil changes. A poem should come to a complete stop at all periods. And then, after looking around in all directions and checking the rearview mirror, streak like a comet down the straightaways of a long line that wraps around each end just because the paper isn't wide enough to accommodate all that distance between the space and the truth. A poem should carry as much weight as a drunk truck, as much fuel as a tanker, as much val value as an armored car, as much class as a 32 Duesenberg with 16 cylinders and flip-up headlights, and as much chrome as... Well, it should have a lot of goddamn chrome. And it should make as much noise and as smoke as a demolition derby. And when a poem comes home, it should sit in the driveway, outside of the garage, so all the neighbors can enjoy it too. And its engine should tick, 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 while it cools down and wait, not very patiently, for its next escape from inertia. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and one more. This is for Todd. He and I had an email exchange today in Ann Arbor where uh, I, I help run the slam. Uh, in uh, a week, we're going to have our first uh, round of uh, the slam involves singing. There must be lines of singing or some kind of a song or something like that. Todd said that his voice causes birds to drop out of trees dead. <laughs> and so does mine, but I'm going to sing anyway. You remember that old standard, Only You? Beautiful song. I sing it to my wife when we're completely alone and there's no chance anyone will hear me. <laughs> well, as I get older, I start looking around and one of the things that bothers me about the way our culture seems to be going is uh, the way people seem to be focused on I. In fact, I was gratified to see my name on the side of the building when I pulled up here. <laughs> so this is a song I've rewritten <clears throat> called Only I. Forgive my singing. I'm Only I matter in my own mind. Only I deserve to cut in line. Only I and I alone can serve my own ego. We both know I'm high and you are low. Only I know the right way to go. And if you would dare to drive too slow in my left lane of my highway, I'll pass you on the right and I'll flip you off as I drive off in my night. Only I can leave my lights on bright. Only I possess the divine right to cut you off and swear at you and tell you to go bite my ass, my balls, and remove you from my sight. Only my religion is just right. Only my morality is bright. Only my opinion matters. Shut up, you viral blight. You're wrong, you fool. And, of course, I'm right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, this is a, a new little one I just wrote called Evidence. The sun-slanted stillness of my small-town bungalow retreat that has peacefully marked a fresh start for nearly two years is liberally littered with it now. The gauzy summer sun porch clutches the clutter of a migratory ashtray which used to be pristine and on the other side of the door, my rare visitor's habits relegated to the elements. 
Sunday mornings, I pour a carafe of aroma that pricks the longings of my kicked habit as it sits steaming and waiting for awakening while I brew the flatter scent of my decaf and my once spare toothbrush holder bristles with a partner for mine and razors that bear their manly fangs. Renegade guitar picks rattled their tiny staccato rhythms around the dryer after escaping imprisoning pockets of jeans with too much long and slender heft to be mine that I fold up and slip into the cloistered hush of the half-empty second drawer in my otherwise overstuffed bureau, the slice of territory I've donated to the constant male presence in my sanctuary. It is a welcome sacrifice, one whose absence I have valiantly ignored since the night five years back, when I made the eyelid-propped drive home from graduate school to be greeted by newly roomy closets and accusatory gap-toothed grins from bookshelves and CD rack, and tried to lose myself in the tidy comfort of necessary household routines which quietly worked until a pair of boxers surfaced in the laundry and the stunned realization that I had no idea what to do with this simple item that I'd creased and placed in its proper home for so long made it all too thunderingly real. But this new flotsam of relationship has drifted itself into my days with a gentle insistence of safe belonging and I find that I welcome this changing of the tides. This is a Towns Van Zant song. I hope I don't fuck it up. <laughs> At my window, watching the sun go. When the stars know it's time to shine Daydreams aloft on dark wings Soft as the sun streams at day's decline Then is laughing Dying says nothing at all Been I lying here watching the evening fall? Time flows through brave beginnings, she leaves her endings beneath our feet. Walk lightly upon their faces. Gentle traces upon their sleep. is dancing, Diane's doing nothing at all. Living our lion here, watching the evening fall. Three dimes, hard luck and good times That rhymes in fast lines, not much to say Feel fine, feel low and lazy Feel gray and hazy, feel far Ain't lying, dying ain't flying so high. Living out wandering, watching the day go by. Living ain't lying, dying ain't flying so high. And I wonder watching the day go by. Ooh, 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 ooh. 
material. Uh, and uh, uh, this is in reference to Joe's uh, troubles with his, uh, with his mother right now, or Joe's mother's troubles. Uh, this is a poem about my father who's been gone for three years now. And uh, <coughs> it also segues off Drax because this is a poem that I read at Rudamaya's at, in Austin uh, in 99, so 98, I guess that was. It's called Freudian Freight Train. And it used to be memorized, but it isn't any longer. I understand the Freudian implications of writing a poem that contains my father and the image of an old steam-powered freight train. I wrote it anyway. Because when I was five, we lived in a rented house that lost one corner of my bedroom to the railroad right-of-way. It was the end time of steam and coal smoke, of ash, soot, and old cold clinkers on the rail bed. The end time of the hobo era. I think Daddy wanted to do what the hobos did. He told stories about the famous old bows who rode through town before my time. Lonesome Jack and Singing Mike and Lou, Queen of the Bows, his prized story of catching an image of her rolling outbound, drying her waist-long red hair in the wind, riding on a rusting red flat car. And twice I saw dirty, sad, and tired old men riding in boxcars, huddled back in the dark, shadowed in from the wind, though I couldn't tell it the way Daddy did. It was a special time of myth, of loose coal gathered along the tracks for our furnace, a time of poverty I did not perceive, of engineers who would sound the whistle if you signaled with a mime of pulling the steam cord, of conductors waving red and green lanterns to switchmen on the ground, and of cabooses whose noise faded away with rhythmic double clacks, clack, 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 as I lay in my irregularly shaped bedroom at night. These days I understand the engineer serves a telephone and a computer. Without the mass of all that cast iron, even the mystery of flattened pennies is diminished. The caboose is replaced by an end-of-train device, further trivialized by a shortening to its initials, the ETD that relays data back to the diesel electronically, using its own rails as conductor, its own wheels as receptor, an endless loop talking to itself, talking to itself, talking to itself, all the way outbound and all the way back in. The bows are gone, bounced for good by railroad dicks, gone homeless and immobile. The pneumatic coupling from the last car, absent the old caboose, hangs down like wasted old impotence. Dad died, just withered away and died, and I spread some of his ashes among the tides. The rain will settle some of him right into the fabric of the rail bed, and when he dries out again, He'll get stirred up by the wheels and settle on boxcars and stick to greasy couplings and he'll make that long run west and get caught up all night in the switching yard. I think Daddy wanted to go where the hobos went. He told stories. I think my bowels are psychic. My bladder has only the slightest inkling that paranormal experiences happen to internal organs. Always have the excuse of alcohol or stress to explain it away and convince itself that nothing really happened. But my bowels, my bowels are psychic. The only real question left is, are they passively or actively psychic? Do they detect disturbances in my daily life just before they happen and drive me to the toilet in a forlorn hope of avoiding them? Or is it like sympathetic magic? Do they only move when the crap of life is already on the way? Whatever the mechanism, damn they're sensitive, enough to pick up special deliveries on the way up the front walk or important long-distance phone calls about to be made. But of course, I ignore them. Maybe if they could speak inside my mind with a totally fake late-night TV third-world accent. Listen to me, boy. I'm all knotted up. That means you don't go work for this man. He make you miserable. Take the other job, hon. Maybe I'd listen to my balls if they came from high in the Carpathians and did card tricks before warning me. I see shit in your life. Endless shit if you move to Fresno, California. Or... Maybe if my bowels communicated like some Zen mystic. How many kinds of sorrow are there? Do not have sex with this person. 
then maybe I'd pay attention and accept just how psychic they are. If they could speak, English that is, my bowels might be the first agency in history to confirm the existence of extraterrestrials or to communicate with whales and dolphins. Sometimes I think maybe if they stuffed clay tablets full of ancient writing up my ass, then my bowels could make clear the wisdom of long dead civilizations. Of course, maybe they're actively psychic. Maybe my bowels cause the effects. Maybe they're pulling the strings, forcing people to come to my door unannounced the moment my pants go down. Maybe the reason my ass rarely even hits the seat before somebody asks me, are you done in there yet? Is because my bowels are secretly forcing people to ask these questions because they just like all the attention. <laughs> Normal bowel control may not be enough. Maybe with meditation, biofeedback, and secret Tibetan Buddhist bowel exercises, I'd acquire the super fine bowel control necessary to influence world events, bring peace to Jerusalem and Belfast, change history, open the gates to alternate dimensions. Picture every last coked out scion of every old political gangster family in this country moving to my rhythms. All the Bushes, all the Kennedys, under the sway of my bowels. At least then, politics wouldn't be the same old shit. We'd get some new shit in there. Now, if you'll excuse me, the spirits are calling. <laughs> Great America was until last night when I watched a porn flick through an open window. It don't get no better than that. It was voyeurism times three. No need for human contact at all when a man is fucking a woman and they are filmed by a cameraman and someone rents that videotape and I peep that movie through an open window. I am become that man fucking that woman. America means never having to meet your lover. All 250 million of us are simultaneously getting fat on couches, watching other men and women shoot our baskets and run our races and defend our goals for us. I don't have to leave my house at all. The whole world is delivered to my door in white cardboard boxes, and my icebox is filled with two cases of beer endorsed by 20 retired football heroes. America means athleticism begins and ends at the refrigerator. America is best viewed through a 90-inch big-screen TV life-size. It don't matter that the TV people don't look like me or dress like me or act like me because they look and dress and act like I wish I did, and that's what matters. America tells us that the whole world is 20-something white and beautiful, and we believe it. The whole world is just sitting around New York City coffee houses trading banalities with clever clones of ourselves, and we like it. America means must-see TV is no lie. We don't need to go to hell because we're already there. We're living it, baby. Hell is pleasing illusion painted so thickly in harsh reality we don't know the difference. We're eating shit and liking it because it looks like porterhouse. We're wallowing in the mud, imagining the beaches of Jamaica. We're fornicating with dogs and horses all the time, thinking of Claudia Schiffer. America means never having to open your eyes. And what's wrong with that? We can go right on believing the whole world loves us for our most American of contributions to culture, blue jeans and Baywatch. The French don't really hate us. They're just upset we kicked the, their butts of the Germans, and the Russians think we're whining about the fall of communism, and the Canadians think we stole their beer and hockey teams. America means never having to say you're sorry because we write our own history books. This is America, and everyone's busting down the gates of Tanaris and crossing the river sticks to get in because in America, we can pretend we're not suffering while we surround ourselves with our luxury sedans and our big screen TVs. In America, the sane are locked away for disturbing the peace. In America, the best of us will rot in prisons or die on the streets. In America, George is king. America, I do not know you. America, what's the point? That does it. 
I've had it. I'm getting a vagina. <laughs> As a straight white male, I can't say shit about the way I watched you sucking down that cherry cola with a moist spot growing between my velvety thighs. Velvety thighs? I can't say velvety thighs. If I made a reference to staring hard at your erect nipples, you would loathe the ground I walk upon. But if I had a vagina, I could say moist slacks. And the male judges would cream their pants. But if I say moist slacks without the vagina, you people would kick my ass. That does it. I'm getting a vagina. Todd Bannon will be my greatest fan. He'll invite me to dinner with his wife and watch Susan watching me, wishing, hoping, praying that I really do have a vagina. When I get my vagina, I'm going to have a one-hour orgasm at the ribbon-cutting ceremony, and I'm not going to mount my vagina between my legs like everybody else. Hell no! I'm going to have it riveted to my chest so I can watch it quivering beneath my wife beater tank top. And I won't write any goddamn vagina poetry either. I'll just press it up to the microphone and let it purr. All eligible suitors will have to crawl on their hands and knees through shredded asbestos and broken beer bottles to approach my vagina. And they will plead like little girly boys. Oh, hello, Mr. Bliss's vagina. How are you doing this fine evening? They will stammer, oh, Mr. Bliss's vagina. You come here off. Mr. Vagina, sir. Vagina, Bliss, sir. Can I buy you a drink for your vagina? And my vagina will roar back at them. Piss off, you dirty motherfuckers! While I compare my vagina to every other vagina walking through the front bar door. But if I had a vagina, I wouldn't let you near it. I would tease and sway and stroke and pout and shake my ass and bray like a goat to go home, put my vagina back in its box and dream about having something hard and long and silent to dick with when I got bored of shopping at Gazooks for something to feature my tasty little organ. And if by some chance of cruel fate I become the National Poet Laureate, I will demand that all vaginas everywhere be sewn shut so that my vagina is the only vagina that can be heard. My vagina will stand for all vaginas everywhere. All vaginas everywhere where we'll weep in their solitude. And when my vaginal tissue is tragically rejected by my testosterone-diseased body, dying a painful, shuddering man-like death, large pupil children will bring baskets of flowers to lay at the base of my monument at the mall in Washington, D.C. And George W. Bush will have to rise every morning, scratch his ass in a second-story bay window of the White House, throw his Parcheesi dice to see who will actually be in charge today, then bask in the glory of a 300-foot-high statue bathed in magenta moonlight lighting, commemorating my beautiful, luscious, moaning, glistening, heaving, snapping, holy mother Mary of God endorsed, goddess of the immaculate grafting, Mr. Bliss's vagina, can we crawl back into our holes now? Yes, damn it, yes, vagina! I think I have to dedicate this to Drac. <laughs> Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Or in this case, the parking lot of a small rural high school nestled between a plastics factory and the rattling skeletons of dead corn plants. It's the 3rd of December, and too damn cold to be anywhere but cozied up inside, but I am looking for adventure, and whatever comes my way, because I have blown my entire first paycheck of my respectable new librarian job on 700 cc's of candy Scorpio red, gleaming, growling motorcycle without having a clue how to ride the thing. And I gotta get on it just once before winter starts getting serious and I begin to wonder what the hell I've done and why exactly I'm having a midlife crisis at 30. <laughs> yeah, darling, go and make it happen. Take the world in a love embrace. Or in this case, a guy I fell in love with who owned a Harley I fell in love with. And when that fizzled out with the trailing ends of summer and the dust settled onto my new autumnal single status, it dawned on me that there was a sour hole in my life and I was really going to miss third gear. And the lingering ringing in my ears, an oily smell on leather from a dusty couple of hours tearing up dusky back roads, and the look of hood of respect the strangers and out-of-the-way bars hit you with when you settle your helmet on the bar and order a beer. I was hooked. 
So I figured I could either pine for the bike ride lost or find myself another one or become one myself, which has landed me in this freezing cold parking lot with 450 pounds of metal thrumming between my thighs that I just can't seem to stop stalling. I brace myself yet again and fire all of my guns at once and explode into space and at last I'm off. Hitting the dizzying pinnacle of third gear and 30 miles per hour, my coach's shouts lost in the giddy roar of the engine and the icy wind whistling past and I'm gone. This is it. The leather-wearing, badass, biker bitch, take-no-shit-need-no-man moment that I have been longing for, in which I launch myself without a backward glance over my newly toughened shoulder, and all of a sudden the smoke and lightning are gone. The heavy metal thunder, gone. And of all things, I am an eight-year-old kid again, pedaling madly around the parking lot of the old mousetrap factory perched at the end of my street that was the boundary of movement allotted me by an overworried mother. I could see my house from where I turned my precarious figure eights, but it was sheer freedom that tangled its fingers in my hair in the lonesome wind and the fusion of wiry child's body to two-wheeled machine, and now, for the first time in 22 years, I am racing with the wind. And the feeling that I'm under is the unbridled joy of a child, entirely present in the elation of motion, and I understand what I was born to be. Savannah. Where the zebra ran and the rhino roamed, that was my land, that was my home. Where the gazelle grazed and the leopard leaped, where the hyena cackles, land of the jackals. Where the vultures once soared and the lions once roared, what sits on the edge of the Nile, it looks like a log, but it's a crocodile. That was my land, that was my home, the only place on earth where the migration of the wildebeest I can see the lion in the tall grass picking out his feast. I see a family of giraffes, the spotted hyenas grinning as he laughs. I see the great elephant with its sabers of ivory gleaming at the leopard saying, don't even try me. As a cheetah stalks across the land for his prey races, only to on a pack of wild dogs he faces. The predator has become the prey. In the savannah, the roles are forever changing like night and day. That was my land, that was my home, where the beat echoes the sound of the tribal drum, the people dance, play, and hum. The sun scorches the grass from green to golden wheat. That is the same sun that burns your feet. Feel the year-round hot summer breeze. Hear the sound of the tsetse fly carrying a deadly disease. As the trunks of the elephants swing to and fro, coexisting with zebra and Cape Buffalo. As I look up to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, what will be left of my land for the future of tomorrow? again. Oh wait, hold on. Okay. Adam. Nine, six. And Peggy. Nine, seven. All right. We're going to add them up. We're going to throw in a top score. We're going to throw in a bottom score. We're going to mush them together. And, and okay, and I need to talk, um, tell you that um, I got my shoes at St. Luke's. I got them for 50 cents. They're having a sale this week, so you should all go down and buy their stuff. And tip Jake. Tip Jake, because he's cute. I want to squeeze his butt. I mean, uh, uh, I want to squeeze his beer. Yeah. <laughs> okay, everybody be very quiet. Tracy needs to concentrate. <laughs> Jake, tr 29 even. 
And I believe if my scores serve me correctly, that means we have Greg Bliss and Carrie Warla by one-tenth of a point. By one, Aaron, don't worry. That's my, that's my lot in life, too, is losing by a tenth of a point. But you didn't lose because you rock, dude. All right, so second round. All right, we have Greg and Carrie. I'm waiting for phones that aren't ringing, and I haven't felt this adolescent quiver in years. Been filling in the gaps and mortaring up crumbling walls instead. Plastering liquid bright circus posters over firmaments no longer firm. Trying to pretend to convince myself the three rings of faded fun could fill up the void of waiting. For someone to send Quicksilver shivering down my spine with one cautious glance of dove gray. And last weekend, I found a part of myself that I barely recognized. Like an old locker mate at a 20 year reunion. In a deliciously unlikely place. Floating happily on the fumes of tawny port wine in the front seat of a pickup. Wrapped up laughing in a ridiculous embrace with a 120-pound dog smelling slightly of skunk and my giddy fingers fumbling through the long strands of silver of the first man to make my soul sing on a first date since the first time I fell for that fairy tale called love. And I still don't believe in love at first sight, but I am believing that I can feel again. That dancing the razor's edge of unsure can be infinitely more satisfying than wallowing in the worn rut of comfortable empty. That the quavering question, will he call? Sends a vital trill through me that the mournful musing, will he ever love me, just never did. So I'm perched on a bar stool with a stomach full of flutter, wondering if he'll walk through the door with that quiet confidence that makes my pulse surge, not caring that I feel like a high school sophomore, not even really caring if the phone stays silent, just thrilling to the racing rush of being alive. Sometimes the feeling in my left hand pours through my nails, pulling on the floor for my inner child to stomp, splashing joy shouts, hands whirling in dervish wonder. Sometimes it burns when I pee. Sometimes I remember how you once pleaded, I need something to look forward to, and I wonder why it is that I'm not permitted to make the same request of you. Sometimes I think Winona Ryder is the perfect woman. Sometimes my mom would say to my dad, boy, you're still in a fighting mood. And then she would say, why don't I take you home and beat it out of you? Sometimes my dad's friends would pay to look at the Polaroids. Sometimes I'd rent a four-hour porno, crank the television volume to full, toss some Ted Nugent into the CD player, crank that, then leave the apartment. Sometimes I make lists of all the wrongs I've levied against you. Sometimes you mention you wouldn't know where to begin, and so you skip that part. Sometimes Hillary Rodden Clinton appears in my dreams, commands me to take off all my clothes, then train monkeys take turns pouring vodka and aspirins down my throat while my third grade Sunday school teacher watches, tearing my perfect attendance ribbons into teeny tiny itsy bitsy little pieces. Sometimes I recall the first time we kissed, softly once on your upper lip, softly once on your lower lip, softly with lips pressed tightly together, parting with a short gasp, eyes closed, a secret prayer. Sometimes the voices in my head fuck with me and sing show tunes while I'm having sex. Sometimes I listen to Leonard Cohen in the dark and realize how precious little I truly understand. Sometimes you say something that I've always known to be true, but never heard anybody verbalize. Then before I can thank you, I forget why it was true. Then I forget why you said it. Then I forget the words. And by that time, you said something so utterly asinine that now I think you're a complete fucking idiot. Then I wonder why I never noticed that before. Sometimes I just feel even. Sometimes the kitty puppet talks to the Groucho Marx puppet and the kitty puppet says, today you failed to take out the trash in your allotted five minute window of time. And the Groucho Marx puppet says, I will not ask for sex. And the kitty puppet says, today you left your clothes on the floor and failed to place them in the hamper next to your box. And the Groucho Marx puppet says, I will not ask for sex. And the kitty puppet says, in therapy today, we discussed that the Groucho Marx puppets should not base their happiness on how other puppets treat them. And the Groucho Marx puppet said, I don't know when I'm going to be home tonight. Sometimes I cup our son's face in my hands and I forget everything that's come between us. Sometimes I watch you sleeping late at night and I remember the first house you purchased and the look on your face the day we had to leave it behind. Sometimes I recognize that look, that other person you're going to go away to become for a while, a night, a week, maybe months. So I wait. Attempt sleep right into the night, 
and try to remember who the hell I'm supposed to be sometimes. Weighing off your butterfly. I brought more shit than you can imagine tonight. The first piece of product, you're going to feel like this is a Popeil infomercial before we get done tonight, all right? The first piece of product I have here is a little book called Dog Days, haiku channeled from two mixed breeds. These are not my poems. My dogs wrote these poems, and they psychically generated that information to me and made me write them down, all right? You have to understand, I had the dew claws removed from my dogs, so they don't have any thumbs. They can't hold a pen. <coughs> okay. Um, these three, I'm going to read three of them. These are uh, in response to, to Drax's reference to dogs earlier, okay? Uh, these are written by Zach, my uh, older dog. He's a seven-year-old uh, Rhodesian Ridgeback and Lab Mix. <coughs> uh, I was out in the garden one day, and I suddenly heard, Hey! And I looked around, and of course no one was there. He was on the line. You know, he's on the dog run, but I couldn't imagine, you know. <laughs> so I went back to weeding the garden. He says, hey, I'm talking to you. Write this shit down. And it became apparent that it was, it was Zach who was talking to me. So it went like this. And I think this is pretty good for a, a dog that doesn't have a thumb. He writes haiku, uh, meaning, you know, it's hard to count to five, seven, and five when you've only got four digits. This is the one that's had the most, this got spread around the internet so fast that when I claim that my dog wrote it, people say that I've plagiarized it. It goes like this. The paper boy comes. The paper boy comes. He wants to murder us all. <laughs> bark, 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 bark! <laughs> He's a pretty good dog to write stuff like that. <clears throat> About two days later, uh, he claimed that he was in uh, a writer's funk. You know, he had a block, couldn't, couldn't write. I says, well, write about what you know. Write about what you do. What did you do today? He says, you're a genius. He says, goes like this. All day I sniff butts. I come home to celebrate by kissing your face. Why do you squeal so when I only touch my nose to your smelly place? <laughs> and uh, the last one in the book, there's, a, there's 28 in here. Some written by Edie, short for Emily Dickinson. Doesn't have anything to do with uh, Bob Dole, okay? Edie. Uh, <laughs> this is one of Zach's. It says, uh, I've stopped humping legs, but I can't contain myself when your mother comes. <laughs> it's actually my mother-in-law, but that didn't fit in the pattern, you know. Uh, uh, continuing on the haiku, somebody made haiku earlier. Bill did haiku. Bill, this is not about you, okay? This is about another haikuist I saw at an open mic reading several months ago. He was a guy who looked, I'm not kidding, he looked exactly like David Carradine, okay? <laughs> <coughs> you remember him from Kung Fu, right? These are called haiku parodies. It's a variety of haiku that go in, it goes like this. There's six of them. Uh, David Carradine is at the microphone. I am Grasshopper. A flock of pigeons flee high above us during the poet's reading. Nuggets of poems lie less densely than poets had been intending. Will he ever stop? No, and I will tell you why. He thinks he's not done. The pigeons came... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the pigeons came back. David Carradine is still at the microphone. When pigeons return, even Carradine knows that falcons are needed. Uh, that's out of Saucy Pieces. Five dollars at your local poet's convenience store. Well, what's next? You. I know. Oh, I know. This is a new poem. Um, 
No, that's not it. Uh, Carrie read about laundry, and I, I, it suddenly occurred to me, I don't have any laundry poems. It was uh, pretty weird. And it was about a new relationship. And so this is the closest, closest I can come to a segue. This is about a new relationship I have with someone in the White House whom I'd like to wash away. Okay? Um, who else? Somebody else had a reference to G.W. Bush. Uh, I was, was it yours? Yeah. This is a true story, okay? It's, the title is, and please don't be offended right now. Uh, well, be offended. I don't care. Um, you can catch up with me later on. It's called He's a Pussy, okay? It goes like this. We were watching the second presidential debate when Maggie, our 11-year-old, said, I think Bush is kind of a pussy. That I was deeply engrossed in the oh-so-subtle differences between the candidates, and I said to Maggie, as nonchalantly as I could, what'd you say? I said I think Bush is kind of a pussy. Now, I don't use that word at home, and neither does my wife. In this case, Maggie's growing vocabulary was clearly the function of an ordinary public education. And it's not that I even believe in the concept of bad words. There aren't any bad words, only words badly chosen for the circumstance. And so, in a household of four woman, women and me, pejorative terms relating to female genitals are generally not used. I can't remember a time anyone or anything ever got labeled like that in my home. Thus, George W.'s newfound status as pussy seemed foreign to me. So rather than watch the debate that night, what ensued was an etymological discussion about the term pussy. There were the obvious references to cunt and twat, although we left out gash and crack and hole and and the illustrative antonyms of dick and dickhead and prick were generally useful, but I think they confused the issue for her. If men can be pussies, why can't women be pricks? Well, an excellent question. I think women can be pricks, but everyone is afraid to say so. My wife demonstrated the principle by telling me to shut up and threatening physical violence. And so for Maggie, my literalist, here are the rules of language about the word pussy. One, <clears throat> it is a pejorative term referring to the genitals of a woman and should generally not be used in polite company and never in the presence of a nun. <laughs> and so during the banishment of the word pussy, until recently a perfectly useful noun in my home referring to cats, my thesaurus offers these alternatives. Found under the general heading of bad person, are these more appropriate ways to comment about the character of George W. Bush in public? Maggie, you may use any of the following. George W. is a bad person, a bad man, unworthy, undesirable, unacceptable, or unwanted. He is disreputable, a persona non grata, a, an objectionable person, bad news, bad example, Mr. Bad News, Mr. Bad Example. A wretch, a mean wretch, a beggarly mean wretch of a fellow. A beggar, a blighter, a bummer, a bum, rum bum, a vagrant, a vag, a skid row bum, bowery bum, beach bum, tramp, hobo, beachcomber, drifter, drunkard, vagabond, stiffer, bindle stiff, swag manner, sundowner, a human wreck, a lowlifer, a lowlifer, a mucker, a catliff, a bud marsh, a pill garlic, a devil, poor devil, Pover Diablo, poor creature, sad case, sad creature, sad sack, or sad sack of shit. Good for nothing, good for not, no good, ne'er do well, wasteful, worthless fellow, or a derelict. In the ways of being a rascal, a precious rascal, a rogue, a knave, a scoundrel, a villain, a blackguard, a scamp, a scalawag, a spalpeen, a rapscallion, a devil, a shyster, a sneak. Or as Shakespeare said it, George W. is a rascally, yea, forsooth, knave, a foul-mouthed and calumnious knave, a poor, cuckoldy knave, a poor, decayed, ingenuous, foolish, rascally knave, an errant, rascally, beggarly, lousy knave, a slipper and subtle neighbor, a, fine, a finder of occasions, a whoresome, beetle-headed, flap-eared knave, filthy, worsting-stocked knave, a lily-livered, action-taking knave, a knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meats, a base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred-pound, filthy, worsted-stocking knave, or George W. is a reprobate, recreant, miscreant, bad lot or sorry lot, a bad egg, bad and a wrong and a scapegrace, black sheep, lost soul, lost sheep, backslider, recidivist, fallen angel, degenerate, pervert, profligate, lecher, trollop, whore, pimp, or a beast, animal, cur dog, or a cur dog, a hound, whelp, mongrel, reptile, viper, serpent, snake, vermin, varmint, a hyena, swine, pig, skunk, polecat, insect, worm, or a combination of any two or three from the above, or a wrongdoer, malefactor, sinner, transgressor, delinquent, malfeasor, misfeasor, nonfeasor, misdemeanor, culprit, offender, evil, person or evildoer, or a bastard son of a bitch, SOB, jerk, creep, mother, shit, turd, shit, turd, shit, head, fart, louse, meanie, heel, shit, heel, rat, stinker, stinker, pill, bugger, hood, or hooligan, or any combination of these nouns, one of which is used to modify the other, like louse, fart, or bastard, turd, or meanie, stinker, but in our house, he is no pussy.
He did. <laughs> he did, but I was busy. <laughs> I'm going to skip the one about my sister. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish up with two kind of longer poems. <laughs> um, I had a great uh, opportunity to be at a place called the uh, Feed the Poets reading on the last Sunday of the uh, year 2000, which really was the end of the millennium, you know, understand, in the way you count, okay? So this poem is called The Last Great Poets Bar Brawl of the Second Millennium. <laughs> it makes reference to some people who are rather notorious in the Ann Arbor poetry scene, but you don't have to know them to appreciate what happened, but I will name them nonetheless. And this, by the way, is a history. It is not a poem because it's all true. Right. <laughs> Peter B., in his usual fashion, is after the Christian church again, this time for their thousand violences against the non-Christians. Todd S. is back from SF for Christmas to visit the poetry scene in A2 one more time. Apparently, he is a Christian. Peter B. is on stage dedicating the poem to Todd S. because he likes it so much. I'm only moderately puzzled. I thought these boys didn't play well with others. Todd S. flips Peter B. a little bird, really a little one, hardly above the table type, but top, but I saw it, and so did Peter B., apparently. Peter B. reads with vigor the long poem about Christians enslaving the Moors. He reads with more vigor than usual, and when he is done with a long string of dates and names and one story of Christian oppressors supporting each other for abusing and murdering the non-Christian oppressed, or rather rich men in support of other rich men in oppressing other poor men, he strides straight to Todd S. and swings. Only Todd S. is in the corner of a booth, and at least one person is between them. Todd S. answers with a move, not exactly assaultive, but rather a combination of fending off, mixed with a kind of poet slap. <laughs> and there's Kathy M. in between. I see her head ducking and diving, her long neck bobbing and weaving, assuming falsely that randomly moving targets will meet with less random violence. And Todd S. and Peter B. spin slaps out above her. I am reminded of an old Bugs Bunny cartoon where he and Elmer are boxers, both pair of hands spinning like fan blades over Kathy M's head, not really making contact except with little fingers. And what was I doing? Here was the random assault occurring before my eyes, an intrusion of intended violence into my very nonviolent environment following a passionate verbal expression against man's violence against his fellow men. For the love of God, not necessarily a Christian God, this was a poetry reading, a poetry reading that professes tolerance, a poetry reading that professes inclusion. This is always about non-assaultive behavior, permitting differences of opinion, of origin, of thought, of belief. This is a freedom of speech experience. But here it is. Peter B. tries to slap Todd S. because Todd S. flipped him a little bird because Todd S. doesn't like Peter B.'s poem about how mean Christians are to others. The irony is not lost on me. <laughs> and so for, in, for the moment, in the interest of both artistic expression of the combatants and because I was put here as a benign observer, I am willing to let the spinning fan blades whirl and blur above Kathy M's head. And so were the others. There was no blood. There were no bruises. There are no red swelling bumps on the faces of the battlers. And so far, Kathy M. is uninjured, bobbing and weaving, doing her best rope-a-dope just below the level of the poet's slap fest. Every poem has an ending, and so does every fight. In this case, as it is so often in history, it is ended by another assault. Kathy M. stands up, her head bowed, not in Christian prayer, but in a gesture of summoning power, and spreads her arms between the slapping poets, looking for all the world like a pre-Christian Samson between the columns of the temple, and shouts with great moral authority, Stop it! Just stop it! But they don't, really. The spinning fan blades are farther apart, and neither antagonist stands any chance of accidentally landing a blow on the other. When Van B. rises in all of his bulk to defend Kathy M., his wife, Van B. charges Peter B., who with discretion retreats in the face of a greater force, in this instance punctuated merely by Van B.'s ponytail bouncing saucily about his shoulders. Van B.'s cane is left behind, mercifully leaning against a chair. A bar stool blocks Peter B.'s retreat. It threatens to tangle his feet. I expect this cartoon to end with the flattened Peter B., his eyeballs bulging from a paper-thin face beneath the much larger mass of Van B.'s body. But no fall, no flattening. The combatants are separated. 
I am finally on my feet, trying to insinuate my body between the posturing parties. No one wants to hit or be hit. No one wants to flatten or be flattened. The show is over. Oh, sure, there's poetry still to be read, but the show is over. Marcus M.C. takes each battle poet outside into the snowstorm individually to cool off, kind of like Mr. C., my old high school principal, after those little romps in the boys' room. But the show is over. Peter B. comes back and sits at the bar with his back to Todd S. and Van B. Todd S. comes back and sits at the table next to Kathy M. and ignores Peter B. Next up, the feature. But today, it's just anticlimactic. Uh, the feature, some of you may know that day, was, was Kevin Charles. He has not been back to read Ann Arbor since. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he just hasn't been invited. I don't know. But he kind of had a big eyes there for a while. So did I. It was okay. It was fun. Um, this is the last poem. It's called In the Queue. <coughs> Starting in November and lasting until this very day, there have been all kinds of strange technological screw-ups in my life. And I live on email. I live on the computer. I mean, that's where I do my job. That's, that's where I, you know, that's where my whole life is. And, and there's a terrible thing to say about yourself in public, but that's where my life is, okay? This is called In the Queue. The market pundits are all pointing to quavering.com stocks as the reason the market is twitching and trembling. They all see us following each other off the cliff like so many financial lemmings. Others say the market is a false thing, that since we don't actually produce any things anymore, we can't generate any real wealth anymore, that the only measure of real wealth is in real things anyway. Both schools believe the end is near, and I think they are right, but both of them have got it wrong. We aren't about to crash and burn because of groupthink in the marketplace. And we aren't about to suddenly wake up to the fact that we don't produce anything useful. The market is sinking into the toilet because of all the time we've all spent in the last months waiting in queues in the technical support lines. If you know your party's extension, press 1 now. If you are on a Windows 98 platform, press 2 now. For Windows NT, press 3 now. For Mac, press 4 now. For iMac, press 5 now. For Unix, press 6 now. For any other stupid low end of the market system, press 7 now. And wait until cobwebs replace your hairline. Thank you for pressing 5. If you want to access another machine, which will place you in a different queue and ignore your request for assistance, press 1 now. If you would prefer to have this machine ignore your request for service, Press 2 now. Thank you for pressing a number. All of our technical assistants are currently assisting other dumb fuck users who can't make their machines work either. Please stay on the line. Your call is important to us. We like to begin all our conversations with an air of moral and intellectual superiority. We also like to imply that you would never have computer problems if you would just stay the fuck out of the porn sites. Thank you. Have a nice wait. Please enjoy these horrible recordings of terrible 80s music converted to elevator music in the meantime. I'm sorry, all of our technical assistants are watching old Star Trek returns. They can't take your call until Captain Kirk evolves to a higher state and stops ogling Nurse Chapel. If you would like to watch Star Trek, hang up and turn on your television. You may then stare dumbly at that screen for a while. If you would like to continue waiting, press 1 now. If you would like to continue waiting, press 1 now. If you would like to continue waiting, Press 1 now. If you would like to continue waiting and not continue pressing buttons, press 2 now. Thank you for pressing 2. All of our technical assistants are still busy assisting other dumb fucks. We measure the intensity of your dumb fuckedness by how long you will continue to wait and press buttons. If you are a very dumb fuck, press 3 now. Thank you for pressing 3. Your call will be answered by a real person in 11 days. Please stay on the line. Your call is important to us. We are using this data in a doctoral thesis which argues that technology has dumbed down the population and made them all into passive gerbils working their way through virtual rat mazes. For lemming behavior, press 8. To buy a shitload of dot-com stocks at 11 cents a share, press 9. To have a nice day, hang up and go outside. Breathe real air. Ignore virtual problems. Thank you.
How many people want Steve to read another poem? Yes! Clap really loud here, folks. Really loud. I've got one more, but, but the last time I read it, I was in a really politically correct room, and they hated me. <laughs> oh, you will be when you get done with this. Trust me, if you're not pissed off at me by the end of this poem, you just weren't listening. Okay, this takes a lot of wind, so I'm glad we didn't have a lot of breaks for smokes today, okay? <coughs> um, let me just ask this, all right? <laughs> Do we have any, uh, anybody of Irish descent here? Good, you will be pissed off, okay? Uh, anybody of Scottish descent? Uh, you will be pissed off, okay? Okay. Uh, do we have any uh, Latinos? You will be pissed off. Uh, African Americans? You will be pissed off, okay? Uh, 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 Native Americans? You will be pissed off. Okay, good. You don't have a big belly. You'll be pissed off, all right? This is called the BBWG. Well, when it comes right down to it, and I look at the me that I am, I have to say, I belong to the most maligned ethnic group in America. I am a guy. And to make it even worse, I'm a white guy. Can't dance, can't jump, no apologies, but this is not a poem about the good old white boy club. I belong to a club it takes years to join. I am a big-bellied white guy. A double B-W-G. And I have to tell you quick, it's not about the W-G part. My ancestors did not own slaves. They had the idea that moving from starvation in Ireland and Scotland would be smart. So they picked up their meager belongings and immigrated to Appalachia. How brilliant was that? We were too poor to own anything. We didn't own plantations. We had 40 rocky acres and a mule. Sometimes we couldn't afford the mule, so we had to eat him. We were so poor, some of us had to spend some time in armies just to be able to eat. But we always fought on God's side. We were for the North, and we fought against the Kaiser and against the Nazis and against the Commies. Now, we didn't fight the Spanish or the Vietnamese, although we slung a lot of paper during those wars, and we learned to eat in mess halls around the world. My first lesson in non-discrimination involved cold fried okra. I am a double B, W, G, a big-bellied white guy, and I hate only people who hate me for my color, my gender, or my gut. I do not own 90% of the wealth in the world, although I would like to. I did not install or endorse the glass corporate ceiling, but if I did, I would hire ethnic American subcontractors. I do not oppress women and hold them down, although I like it when my wife is on the bottom. But I like it too when she is on the top. I guess I just like my wife. She serves me pot roast, not pot. She makes gravy, not war. I am a big-bellied white guy, a double BWG, and I have been maligned long enough. All of my heroes are BBWGs. The person I'd most like to be is Orson Welles. The person I am most like, Homer Simpson. To have to dinner, meatloaf, duh. Favorite comic, Sam Kinison. Favorite president, Teddy Roosevelt. Greatest human voice, Sebastian Cabot. Damn, I named my dog after that great lover and 300-pounder, Honorata Balzac. Shall I go on? And I hate it when people say they aren't bigoted. Hell, everybody hates big bellies. If somebody says some of my best friends are Jews, in some circles it's as though they claim to be the cloned reincarnation of Hitler himself. But if somebody calls me a lazy tub of guts, it's a joke. A joke that a jolly fat man is supposed to laugh at. Some of my best friends are Jews, and some of their skinny little pansy-ass anorexics, too. But if you don't hear me saying, hey, stick boy, get over here so I can sit on you or eat you, I am a big-bellied white guy, a double BWG. And just how insulting is it to say, if you really wanted to, you could get rid of that. Would you steer African-Americans to hair straightener or Asian-Americans to eye makeup techniques or Latino-Americans to a paler shade of pancake makeup and Native Americans could, Christ, they could cut their hair and stop being so damn loud about spirit and moon too. If we really wanted to, we could all reduce our differences. We could run America through the blender and enjoy the Euro, Afro, Austro, Russo, Sino, Indo, Christo, Shinto, Budo, Aboriginal, Pan-Galactic soup that would be left over every day, same 
same soup. Every night, same soup. Soup for breakfast, soup for lunch, day in, day out. No spices because they might raise the blood of some distinct group. No seasoning for fear of extending some and not others. No herbs from one part of the world because they might not mix well with herbs from some other part of the world. One bland pablum for all people, for all meals, for all time. Bullshit! I'm a big-bellied white guy, a double BWG, and this is my manifesto. I got to have variety, diversity, change. Meat and taters are good, but I got to have a range of flavors. Hit me with a salsa to make me sweat. Give me a little curry to cavort on the tongue. Give me some soy, a sauce to savor. Sweet and sour, sure be nice. Give me some hollandaise heavy and hearty. Give me some shrimp I can grill on the barbie. Some beef and chicken and pork and lamb. Some goat and snake and snails and fish. Hummus and garlic, tofu, star fruit, bananas and chickpeas. A side of steam and chitlins. And yes, some boiled potatoes. And wash it all down with a quart of thick Scottish ale. And let my big belly be the melting pot of the world. The place where all diversity meets and finally mingles in harmony and satisfaction. I am a big bellied white guy. And finally in love with my own self-image. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum.